G'day guys, before we jump into this week's episode, I've got a special offer for our podcast listeners. If you want to keep fit and healthy, sign up to Minifit Online today and get six weeks free. 15-minute bodyweight workouts, no equipment needed. Train with Anthony Minicello from the comfort of your own home. Just use coupon code THECHANGEROOM. That's THECHANGEROOM when you sign up and get six weeks free. Just head to minifit.com.au. This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Welcome to the Change Room Podcast, a whiff of well-being with Minnie and Matt. Well, here we are, Maddie, at the end of season one of the Change Room Podcast. What a wild ride it has been. Mate, it's just been unreal. I don't know how we've pulled it off, Minnie, to be honest with you. Some of the guests that we've got on, like, I feel so fortunate, and I've got no doubt that our listeners do as well. Mate, it's been sensational, but I reckon you might be keeping something up your sleeve. Am I right? I love a sleevey mini, and while I'm not going to say we kept the best to last, I tell you what, the one we're pulling out of the sleeve today, Dr. Livy Weaver, she is right up there, mate. What about the extraordinary interview and the time that we got to spend with her? I don't know if you learn a lot, but I certainly learn a heap. And I just, before I pass back to you, bud, I want to thank the people that have taken the time to review our podcast, give us that feedback, write ratings. Mate, it really means a lot. It certainly does, Maddie. We really appreciate it. And I can't wait to get cracking on season two. But let's hear from Dr. Libby Weaver as we open the door to the Change Room podcast of Whiff of Wellbeing. Well, I'm excited about today's podcast, excited, the Change Room podcast. Mm. We've got a very, very uh, special guest on, Dr. Libby Weaver. And I'm not going to put any pressure on you, Libby, you know, even though we've known each other for a while. You know, you're the author of 13 best-selling books. You're a nutritional biochemist. You're a TED talker, an inspiring speaker. So we're expecting you not only to change the lives of our listeners, but Anthony and I are going to be coming out of here absolutely bouncing. Welcome aboard, Libby. Cannot wait. I'm very chuffed to be joining you, boys. Thank you so much for having me join you in the change room. Beautiful. So before we jump into the questions, we always like to ask our guests the same the same question. What have you done today to elevate your own well-being? Well, nature is uh, something that really uplifts me. So this morning I watered my vegetable garden and then I let my chickens out for a run and cleaned out their chicken coop. But nice. that really elevates me because then I get to collect the eggs that they lay and I ate those for breakfast. So they've been well nourished, those little chooks, happy, yep. healthy chooks. And then I did a weight session and then now I'm talking to you boys. So I've had a, a morning full of uh, well-being, uplifting moments. So, so tell us where you are. Do you have a farm or are you on a bit of acreage? or? <laughs> I have a bit of space. It's by no means yeah. a farm, yeah. but it's enough space to grow some vegetables to supply myself and a few of my friends and some of my team. Love it. Um, and, uh, yeah, and the Chooks are a great company. Their names are Moira, Alexis and Stevie. They're oh, named cool. after females in a TV show I love called Shits Creek. So. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Good fun. How good's that? That is amazing. Yeah. Are you jealous? Because, I am. Because that, that's right up your alley, isn't it? It is, yeah. My, my parents better. live the same way, but, yeah. I don't have the space at the moment, but I will have a little veggie garden. But my parents have chickens and eggs and fruit trees and veggie patches and it's a it. joy it's, it, is. it is it is it brings it really uplifts my soul if it's not if I've got to zoom off first thing in the morning and I don't get to do it mm. uh, it's the day's just not the same <laughs> well again I think that really kicks us into the next question question because what we're actually mm. discussing here is how we can actually contribute to people feeling better mm. and elevating their well-being and you've got such a diverse skill set Libby it's really hard to, to sort of navigate which direction to go, but I'm going to be a bit selfish to start off with. And as a father of four, I know that you speak you know, very, very articulately a bit around the role of women in modern life and how that's evolved in recent times from you know, really focusing on being a mother into like professional and, and other pursuits. I'd really like to get your insights into how that's not only impacted the individual because that basically the the, the, the amount of work required has expanded, right, but also how that impacts the people both personally and professionally in their lives. Yeah, it's thank you for raising it. It's We've got to keep having these conversations because 
when you consider the enormity of human history and just how long humans have been on the planet, it's only in the very, very, very recent past where women have shifted from being essentially nurturers into doing the way I describe it is almost like a frantic double shift Mm. of work day and night with often very little rest involved in that. And we're completely capable of doing that. Absolutely. It's just that our bodies have never been asked to behave like this. Our, body, our physical structures, I often call it an earth suit, our earth suits have never been asked to live like this. And the way that a life without enough rest uh, and essentially nurturing for ourselves, the way that often presents as challenges for women is with a feeling of overwhelm, constantly elevated stress hormones and the ripple effect of all of that, which can impact their thyroid function, it can impact their reproductive hormones, so they end up with really debilitating menstrual cycle symptoms. They can suffer terribly as they transition through into menopause, challenges with fertility. The list is just about endless, uh, the way that stress affects us. So it's a, a big part of my work is, or what I hope I do with my work is, encourage women to embrace everything that they are capable of without it leading to their health suffering because you can do both but you've got to understand what's what your body's going through and provide it with what it needs please understand too every generation has had stress of Mm. course but never before has it been so constant and so relentless because historically when we had elevated levels of stress hormones it was because of a threat to our life a physical threat to our life whereas now thankfully we're relatively safe and what leads us to have elevated levels of stress hormones tends to be, lock your ears, everybody, uh, caffeine. That just, that's it's physiological. It binds to the adenosine receptors in the brain and when it binds, it then says to the adrenals, produce adrenaline. Uh, the other things that lead us to make adrenaline are our perceptions of pressure and urgency. And I use that word perception there mm. by choice. We th- we've forgotten that we get to choose how we see each day. And then the other thing that I think when you really drill down into what leads someone to make adrenaline these days, and I think this is everyone, this is males and females, I think it's sometimes a bit easier to see in women. It's, and this is very much the emotional pillar of my work, uh, had enough of us just going, oh, it's just stress. No, no, tell me what stress is for you. Mm. I want to break it down because otherwise people are going to think that this is just how life is now. And all these challenges with women's health are going to continue to to come forth unless we work out what stress is for us as individuals. And one of the ways in my work that I'm guiding women to explore this is to find what I call are their forehead words. So these are the words that are the traits that we need other people to see in us. So a great exercise I think for anyone to do is to sit with pen and paper and ask yourself, how do I need other people to see me? And the words that come out of a lot of women's mouths are kind, thoughtful, selfless, intelligent, courageous, independent, or the biggest right, perfect is a big one, uh, or the biggest ray of sunshine that ever walked into a room. And so then the next time someone's stressed, I encourage them to pause and consider, am I perceiving that someone is seeing me in a way that is the opposite to one of my forward words? And nearly always the answer is yes. So when I talk about the evolution of women's health and the way that this frantic double shift now is can be affecting some women's health, that perception of how others see us is enormous in that constant production of adrenaline. And it's just a story we make up because we're raised to be good girls. We're raised to put the needs of other people ahead of our own typically. And there's beauty in that. There's a sense of community in that, but we can't do it at at the expense of of our health. Well, I've just... I've got my yeah, no, yeah, putting yeah, fingers yeah. in my hands because I've yeah. got questions so coming right. out of that. So <laughs> I don't know which one to ask first, but I'm going to go back to where the question started. And this is quite interesting because we do this as experts in modern life is, is that we then tend to burrow down into, well, what do the women need to do differently? And I would like you to answer that a little bit, but this can't be just an issue for women. This has got to be a, a you know, a community issue or a family issue where people, you know, of my gender also contribute to making this this easier as well. Mm, such a yeah, such a beautiful point you raise, and it has to be. So, when I will say to a female, you know, tell me what your day looks like, she. And please understand that this is a dance. It's a dance in families between everybody. So there's no, there's no blame here. 
it's just that quite often a woman will take on responsibility for just about everything. And they'll say, well, I do the groceries. I do all the cooking. I do all the cleaning. I spend most of the time doing the childcare. And then on top of that, she has a full-time job that doesn't end when she leaves the office because she's still got to do emails and things at home. So, and that's what I mean by the frantic double shift. The first thing is that women have to be able to ask for help because some don't. It's part of their their nurturing is that they see that they have to look after everyone. So I think part of it is that women need to ask for help and then other members of the family and, and the, or the business need to offer help before the person's falling apart. <laughs> and, and, and it might be systems need to be put in place that are appropriate to different people's skill sets. I think children can be called on probably a lot earlier than they are to help in the home. I can remember one lady uh, saying to me it changed her life when she allocated, she had three children and she allocated uh, three nights a week to each child to be responsible for dinner. And she said, in the beginning, it was just dreadful. She said it was basically inedible. But after about four, about, after about four weeks, they sort of started to get it together. And so she had three nights off a week of not cooking. The beauty was then the kids had learned how to cook things. So they're going to grow up to be, you know, more supportive partners, mm. uh, but, but able to look after themselves. So the benefits of that are enormous. So I think people have got to offer help and also ask for help. You said something earlier, which I think is very important about stress. It's the your perception of the stress that's happening in your life. So that's very individual. Yeah. So with the clients that you work with, how do you get them to realise or how get them to change their perception so they can actually live a healthier and happier life? I'm so, so happy to talk to that concept. So I often, I use stories quite a lot. So I remember to show them how it is a perception. So Ultimately, what I'm trying to do is help people see what I call is actuality versus reality. So mm. the reality is what they've created through this perception yeah. and I want them to see the truth, if you like. So and one of the stories I'll often use to help people see that, that they're constructing the perception of stress for themselves, is I was the guest speaker for the ovarian, the breast and ovarian health uh, conference. Yeah. And the room was filled with women who had either been told that they had the gene for breast and or ovarian mm. cancer or they had one of those cancers or they were cancer thrivers. So they'd once had uh, that one of those cancers and they now were free of one of those cancers. And when I speak when it was live, <laughs> I love to, to sit around and answer people's questions after an event. But I also often have questions of my own. It's one of the ways that I really love to continue to learn. And so after I spoke, women approached me individually, not all en masse, to ask questions. And the theme that was coming out of me that day was I'd say to them, do you feel like you're living with a lot of stress and pressure and urgency, considering that some of them had a poor prognosis, some of them had an unknown prognosis. So, you know, how how distressing can could that be, not knowing how long you're going to live, whether you're going to recover from this mm. condition? Some of them were suffering with ter terribly financially because they weren't able to work anymore because they were suffering so much with their treatment. Some of them had had relationships and marriage breakdown. Some of them had teenage children and challenges coming through with that. So, in other words, a lot of these women were facing all of life's biggest, toughest things all at once, including a question mark around their own mortality, and when I asked them that question, did they felt like they were living with a lot of stress and pressure and urgency? Every single one of them said no that day. And the essence of what they communicated back to me was that they just felt so privileged to still be alive. Mm. And we don't want it to be some kind of health crisis that wakes us up to how magnificent all of this is. Yes, there are challenges. And because so much of our stress comes, I think, when we, we just want the pleasure without the pain. But life is both. Yeah. And we don't grow if there's no pain. And sometimes that pain is so hard to take. It's mm. virtually unbearable, but it's, I have a, a, a real in-ground belief in me is that life happens for us, not to us, yep. even the really tough stuff. So if mm. it's all for us, what is, what, how does that change for you? How does that change the way you see things? So I'm not denying for a second that life isn't busy for a lot of people. It's, it's jam-packed for a lot of people. But a busy life doesn't have to be a stressful life. The stress, absolutely believe, comes in the perception. Yeah. Can, can I go into a semantic here and geek out just for a tick? I, I really want to because stress gets a bum rap, right? Mm. Yeah. But, but, you know, you went and trained this morning. You went to the gym and that stresses your body. 
learning new things like I am now can be quite stressful and that's part of the growth process, right? And I know you, you're teaching this and Anthony certainly does, in, is that a lot of what we learn about food, for example, is is not new. It's old stuff yeah. that, that we're, we're bringing forward. And I read a book by Dale Carnegie, which was written in the early 1900s, and they didn't call it stress then. They called it worry. Is, is that a more accurate? Because I, when I sort of read that, I started off going, well, they're miles behind. They had no idea about this and went, mm. oh, okay, people coming out of the wall probably did have some of those things that we call mental health, you know, challenges and stuff like that. But they called it worry then and it made a lot more sense to me because, mm. you know, it's like pressure. Pressure mm. gets a, a bum rap as well, but you can't ex- achieve anything extraordinary without the mm. pressure on. That gives us that opportunity and stress the right amount of stress, it's That's like it. we say stress plus rest mm. equals growth, yep. whereas stress plus stress <laughs> equals inflammation, right? So is it actually worry that we're talking about or is it stress that we're talking about? So, <laughs> Sorry. So, no, I love it. I, I love this stuff. I, I can geek out about this for hours. So, well, buckle up. Um, <laughs> Certainly the way science now uh, explains the stress that benefits our physical body, our thought processes, the way we myelinate new brain pathways, they call it U-stress, spelt E-U, stress. So that's the stress that's beneficial for us, that pushes us, but we then adapt. And that's, I think, one of the key words is that you, le- you it, it's uncomfortable at first, but then you adapt and then you grow. So that's very healthy. And as a species, we're, we're designed to do that. And it's usually only through what we currently label as stress that we are, or you could call it pain, or you could call it worry. That's, that's how that happens. But to, that, that's where that growth comes from. But it's what you said earlier about when it's relentless, when there's absolutely no break from it, or when you don't see the opportunity in it, the the opportunity to grow and learn and do something differently. The way I often explain it, it's asking you to eat, drink, move, think, breathe, believe, or perceive in a different way. Or it might be a number of those departments. Can I ask you to say that again? Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Eat, drink, move, think, breathe, believe, or perceive. Or it might be a number of those departments and it might be, that might be a 20-year project to get all the insights. But every day there's an opportunity to shift just something small or massive in, in one or many of those areas. So it's when, so it's when the stress is endless and we're not catching a glimpse of the, oppor- of, of the gifts in it. And I'm not saying that's easy. That's a lifetime's work for most of us if you if you want to do it that way. and But it's a healthier way to do it because that's where the growth comes from and that's where the stress shifts into that eustress. You get the recovery, mm. you get the growth and the fulfilment. But on to come back to your word about worry, I guess the way I kind of see that these days, it's definitely the way people used to be because they didn't talk about things that bothered them that much, which I don't really think is that healthy. It probably wasn't permissible. It wasn't allowable. allowable. You just got on with things because you were just trying to survive more than anything, I think. So now the way I see those words is the warriors are, it's like a silent kind of stress on the inside, whereas the when people are stressed, there can be some, not always, but there can be some drama involved. <laughs> so I, I worry more about the worriers because they're often not those who express, I think, uh, what's really bothering them. And I think they're the ones we've got to be particularly supportive of to help them, yeah, shift through the what they're experiencing. Yeah, look, I couldn't agree with you more. I think when I look back at my own rugby league career and I had a run of injuries for four years, it was a stressful time, but it was a time where... Uh, I found opportunity and learnt and, and, and grown and have evolved and, you know, that's why I'm working with Matt now in the change room. So in, in, and, and, and I really realised back then that your mental and your physical and emotional states are all connected and that's what mm-hmm. we talk about at the change room, you know, the physical, the mental and emotional states and how mm-hmm. we improve one thing and the other one improves and finding a balance between the three. And we mm-hmm. talk about, you know, nutrition and meditation and breathing and, and sleeping and um, the way you think and feel and the perception of stress and all that type of stuff. Um, it, ha, how do you you work on those three states with your clients or what tools do you give them? 
it's so similar that those pillars that we're that we work on so in my world i call them the nutritional the biochemical and the emotional so that marries up really well with with the work you boys are doing so our body our earth suit requires nutrients to run itself it's it's actually nutrients that keep us alive Mm. the nutrients are needed to run all of the biochemical pathways inside of us so every single second there are billions not M for million, but B for billions of biochemical reactions occurring. But we don't have to instruct them. that they, mm. they just happen and they give us our physical function. They allow us to think. They determine what our skin looks like, whether we use our bowels today, just absolutely everything. And nutrients are needed for all of those biochemical reactions to occur inside of us. So let me just give you an example of that. So one biochemical pathway might be that you've got substance A up here, And then that's going to get converted into substance B and then substance B gets turned into substance C, C becomes D and on and on that cascade of change keeps going. But back up to the top of the pathway, for substance A to turn into substance B, let's say you need magnesium and vitamin B6. Mm. If you're deficient in either or both of those nutrients, then substance A will start to accumulate because it can't be converted efficiently into B and then you won't have enough substance B. Mm. And what if you need substance B for great energy or restorative sleep or to be able to use your body fat effectively as a fuel? So in other words, when we're nutritionally deficient, it impacts your biochemistry none of those pathways can run efficiently and then that impacts absolutely everything. So that's the nutrition and the biochemistry and then the emotional part of it and the way I work on it with clients is I the question I pose is why do we do what we do even though we know what we know? Because a lot of people have got exceptional knowledge. It's not a lack of knowledge that leads yeah. them to push off a packet of chocolate biscuits after dinner. Yeah, no one yeah. does that going, yeah. oh, it feels so good after I do this. <laughs> We don't, we don't necessarily understand why we do it, mm. but there are usually emotional triggers and it's usually some kind of belief or a number of beliefs we have about ourselves that work. We didn't sit down and choose them. We don't sit down when we're four years old and go, that belief's so dysfunctional. It's brilliant. I'll take that on and it'll really come to life when I'm 45. That'll be great. We don't, we don't choose our beliefs. We absorb them in the environment in which we grow up usually. So we're often unaware of them, but they usually run our life until we examine them. So the way that those three interplay, the nutrition feeds the biochemistry and then the emotions can feed the biochemistry as well, but the biochemistry can also feed the emotions because yeah. when you're, when someone's fatigued, yeah. they're flat, you then go hunt or it might be, you might be really, you might have a lot of anxious feelings, your mm. heart's racing, you're kind of wired. That can be biochemical, yeah. not psychological, or it can start psychologically and then affect the biochemistry. So, but if it starts in your body, mm. what I find people do is they then go looking for why they've got this happening. Oh, it must be because she annoyed me or he didn't get back to me on time and now I feel like he doesn't really value me. Mm. Or then we create all these stories (laughs) and it's the beliefs that drive the types of stories we create, whether they're kind of love-filled stories or fear-based stories. So can we have break-in points or do we have, mm. or is there a, a certain direction that we need to go where we get our nutrition sorted, then we get that sorted? Or can, or can we break in at all different points there? You can break in at all different points, absolutely. And it depends, I think, where the opening is, and that is very individual. So I've had mm. some people, so I've done a lot of work with women over the years, and they would invariably burst through the doors of my office and say things like, I, I want to lose weight. And I remember one lady said, um, I, I want to lose weight, but I've heard you do weight loss weirdly. She said, I heard, <laughs> I've heard that you make people cry. And I said, well, not on purpose. <laughs> and she said, well, you, talk, I've heard, you know, you, you help my friend and you talk to her all about her beliefs and her emotions. And she said, don't talk to me about that stuff. I'm not interested in any of that. I'm overweight because of all of my stress. So talk to me about my stress. And then I want a plan. Give me a plan. I'm really good with plans. I'll follow a plan. Now, when I was seeing patients, I didn't give them plans. I could, that's my training. But if I gave them a plan, how would that be just not another diet that they follow for three weeks or three months and then they go back to what they didn't know? But I'm also, I have a phrase in my work, I'm going to meet you where you're at. So if Mm. she's telling me she doesn't want to talk about emotions, I respect that and I'll explain what she wants. I'll explain to her how stress affects metabolism 
and I will give her a plan, I said, but under one condition, and that is if she doesn't follow the plan, she's got to pay attention to what led her to not follow the plan. No worries, she said, but I'll follow it. I'm really good with plans. Anyway, back she came four (laughs) weeks later. She said, I got to week three. I'd been following the plan. And then she said, I completely fell apart. And I said, okay, good. Now the real work can start. What happened? She said, well, I took my little boy to school and in the morning and I was, we were running late. There was another lady at the gate and she said, and it's really embarrassing, but I'd always wanted to be friends with this lady. And we'd never spoken before, but this day, because we were both running late, we got to have a chat and it was really lovely. And then she said, and then that afternoon when I went to pick up my little boy in the afternoon, this woman didn't speak to me. And she said, and so I went home and emptied the entire contents of the pantry into my stomach. I completely forgot about the plan. And then she went on this great big rant about why the woman didn't speak to her. And it was all along the lines of, I I don't fit in with that crowd. I don't dress like them. They don't invite her little boy to birthday parties. It was all how she wasn't good enough to fit in with this crowd. Anyway, I stopped her and I said, what if this lady didn't see you? No, no, she saw me. And I said, no, no, what if that entire woman's focus that afternoon is getting her precious little bundle across the road and into the car and safely home and she's got 4,000 other jobs and I gave her this whole other scenario to try to help her see that the woman not speaking to her at the gate is not about her. That woman not speaking to her was a reflection of what was going on for that person. Mm. We can be a bit egocentric in our adulthood. We're supposed to be when we're little kids, (laughs) but we can still be when we're adults. And we think that the way everybody is is because of us. If they're happy, it's because of us. If they're miserable, it's because of us. If they don't talk to us, it's because of us. Mm. So it's very egocentric, that mode of conduct. And you can see that the meaning, the woman, that the what happened was the lady at the school gate didn't speak to me, but the meaning my client made was I'm not good enough. And that was, it was that belief that then led her to not follow the plan. So you can break in to the cycle. I can, you can start with nutrition. Absolutely. And for some people, the energy they get, the clarity of mind they get, the, the, the uplift in their mood they get with eating more nutritious food, Mm. that's their break-in point. For others, there's stuff going on with their health, with their biochemistry, that if you can shift that first, that's how they'll shift. And for others, it's more like what I just said of finding the beliefs. Mm. Does that sound familiar, Anthony? Oh, mate, I'm loving it. I'm really fascinated in the biochemistry part. Um, Do you know what's most familiar to me? Mm. You making people cry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Love it. (laughs) They're just uh, truthy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I'm fascinated about biochemistry and, and what I read on nutrition and how, you know, I, I love the saying by Dr. Mark Hyman that our genes load the gun, but our lifestyle pulls the trigger. So, yeah, meaning if you're eating a poor diet, you're sleeping poorly or you're not hydrated, alcohol consumption, your lifestyle comes into it. So talk to me about the, the, the diet or the pillars that you sort of teach or uh, learn yourself or encourage the, the do yourself about what is the fundamentals for you in uh, a good diet? So you're right. There's a lot of confusion out there. And in my opinion, there it's is. completely unnecessary. Mm. So for me, there's no such thing as junk food. There's just junk and there's food. And humans are supposed to eat food. And I could actually, we could sort of drop the mic and walk off just with yeah, that if yeah, you like. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of that simple. Up until, and again, up until the very, very, very recent past, the only thing humans ever ate was food. We now call it whole real food, <laughs> but it's just food. Yeah, yeah. It's the junk that's very new. So, yes, there are there are annoyances within that whole real food thing. Some people do better with more fat, yeah. more protein, less carbs. Some people, like some women lose their menstrual cycle if they don't eat enough carbohydrates, yeah. for example. So you can play with those macronutrients and the what suits different people. That might change a little bit. Yeah. Whereas uh, that, that overall message of primarily eat whole real food it's the junk that's the problem, minimise that or cut that out, uh, that's game-changing for a lot of people. And also with an you know, optimal diet, you just sort of just mentioned it, you touched on it there, it's no one-size-fits-all. Everyone's so individual with you yeah. know, the way they digest their own food, their own genes and genetics. So, you know, it, it's, everyone's different, isn't it? A hundred percent. And it also if we pay attention, it changes over time. Yeah. I'm obsessed with making sure people get enough of the micronutrients because I don't think there's been enough focus on that. The whole, because of calorie counting and the Mm. fashion of that, if you like, that came in 
that's been, a, I think, a really hard mindset for a lot of people to shift, which obviously was all about counting the calories of the macros. And as a result of that, people didn't really talk about micronutrients. Yeah. And we now have between 25 and 30% of women across Australia and New Zealand of childbearing age are iron deficient. Mm. And that has an enormous effect on thyroid function, on their mood, on their gut function, on energy, because iron is needed for oxygen transportation around the body. Zinc is the next most common nutrient deficiency because it used to be uh, widely spread in our fruits and veggies because mm. it was in the soil. But now, unfortunately, yeah. it's usually not in the soil. And if a nutrient's not in the soil, it can't be in the food. So our main sources of zinc now are oysters, the red meats, and there's a little bit in eggs and seeds like sunflower seeds and pumpkin seeds. So zinc is another nutrient that's really easy to not get enough of. So I, with, with that overarching statement of eat more whole real food and really minimise the processed food, what I'm looking to do is massively increase the nutrient density of how someone's eating. So all those micros, nutrients, getting those nice and high, the vitamins and the minerals. And as a result of that, you then minimize all of the potentially problematic substances that we're ingesting. So we have no idea about the long-term effects of some of the things that are now in the food supply. So preservatives, for example, are not added to help human health. They're put into foods uh, to stunt bacterial growth. Mm. And yet we've got anywhere between half a kilo and four kilos of bacteria living in our large intestine that are important for everything from our immune function uh, to what calories are actually worth. They play a massive role. It sort of was common sense to me that if the preservatives in food are designed to stunt bacterial growth in the food to give them a longer shelf life, they must be impacting the human microbiome. And uh, about two years ago, a study actually came out showing that, that that. So when we eat whole real food, it's what it's all about what we get, all those micronutrients, but it's also about what we miss out on. And it's but it is it's finding what what works for an individual. Yeah. Very much. I, I always talk about you know the obviously the sayings you are what you eat, but I take that a step further. You are what your food eats. You know, trying get, <laughs> getting a good source of say plant foods or a good source of animal products is vital because our the farming system is slowly soil depletion and, and whatnot, the, the list goes on. Um, so is, you obviously encourage the quality of your foods first and foremost? Absolutely. And it's we're fortunate that we're living in a world now where we can actually ask those questions. We can have conversations with our butcher. We can yeah. go to farmer's markets and maybe what they've brought to town, it might not be certified organic, but they might be proudly displaying a mm. sign that's spray-free. Yeah. or grown locally so it hasn't travelled, you know, so you mm. can start to, if you care about your food and where it comes from and what what you're eating has eaten, we have access now to, to food in the, in a way that we never have before and information about our food, it's wonderful. Mm. While, like, diet variation is something that's crucial through whole foods, is something that is very individual, I think one of the things that is collective in nutrition is the junk side of it and, and perhaps... You know, it would be good for us to also talk about, you know, we talked about preservatives there, but what are we talking about when we talk about junk? Because it's easy just to say, well, don't eat junk food. What we're finding, and, you know, you know we run programs all the time, is, is people don't know, people's understanding of what junk food is and what junk food really is, is, mm-hmm. <laughs> is very wrong very often. <laughs> it's a lot but not all of what comes out of packets, basically. So Mm. uh, the best way I can explain it is uh, I'll use hummus, a dip that a lot of people eat these days as an example. You can make hummus in your kitchen. So it's got about five ingredients and you throw them all in the blender and you press play and then you've got hummus. Or you can buy hummus at the supermarket, but you'll find that if you read the labels, some of the labels will say that it has a preservative in it or something, a word that you don't recognise as food. It it might have something on the label that you wouldn't put in to the blender in your, in your kitchen if you were going to make the hummus. So that's not a whole real food. That one stays on the shelf. But there are plenty of hummuses out there mm. that only have the ingredients that you would make from, if you made it from scratch, they're the same. So that's how you seek it out. If you can recognise the word as food on the, on the label... <laughs> it's a much better bet than something that's got a word that's very unfamiliar to you or a pile of numbers. People used to be really confronted when I'd suggest that white bread was not a nutritious food. (laughs) And the way I would explain it was, um, does a piece of white bread look anything like the stalk of wheat from which it's made? Obviously, no, it doesn't. 
And that's because the wheat is bleached and rolled and pummeled to create the white bread and all of the nutrients that were originally in the stalk of wheat all get destroyed in that process. So much so that for the white bread to even have any kind of nutrition in it, it's got to be added back synthetically before mm. the product goes on the shelf. So that's not a whole real food. And, but you can, you can see from, from the texture of it that it, and what it looks like visually that it looks nothing like the original food. So that's another way you can do it, where if you get a, a sweet potato, you're only going to mash it or roast it and it'll end up on your plate. You can still recognise that where that's come from. So that ticks the box of a whole real food. So that, there's some of the ways to discern between the junk and the whole real food. That's awesome. But it's, I guess that oh, I've heard the saying, if you don't recognise the ingredient, mm. your body won't. And if your body yes. doesn't, that'll store it as a toxic load. Well, it can. We have got extraordinary detoxification capacities. I do think they are being, you know, stretched to the max. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. And we want to be able to detoxify the problematic things we're exposed to so we can eliminate them But because they become a problem if we accumulate them. So, yeah, that's the worry. Well, I'm going to tap into a different part of your expertise now. And What are you going to tap into? I was, going to, I was going to ask one more question just on nutrition, <laughs> Sil. <laughs> I want to talk about coffee because there's conflicting yep. studies saying it's bad for adrenal production or the other conflicting studies that it's high in polyphenols and rich in antioxidants if you get a, a good quality bean first and foremost. What's your take on uh, coffee and caffeine? It's uh, similar to food that there's no one size fits all. Mm. So everything you just said is true. Uh, there are studies being published regularly in peer-reviewed scientific journals showing all sorts of benefits of coffee consumption and you'll find just as many showing concerns about its consumption. So I will usually put I put it forward to people about noticing how it affects you. So for some, it helps their brain focus and there are studies done showing it helps improve memory, concentration and focus. Mm. There are also positive studies done around it showing how it enhances bile production. So the liver makes bile and bile is, and the gallbladder then stores the bile and the bile is needed to detoxify all fatty, all fat soluble problematic substances. So pesticides, our own sex hormones are fat soluble. So for us to be able to, for a female to clear estrogen, for a man to effectively clear testosterone, you've got to have good bile production as well as pesticides and all sorts of other, you know, mm. potentially problematic substances. So that's some of the good stuff coffee does. However, as we talked about earlier, and as you just identified, it does lead the human body to make adrenaline. And so if someone has a lot of anxious feelings mm. already because of what they're experiencing in their life or because of a background of trauma or they might be a real people pleaser and they might have 600 people on the go that they're in their head they imagine they've got to keep happy, which is a belief, uh, but it's sort of part of their nature until they explore that and pull that apart. So if someone's got a lot of anxious feelings, caffeine from any source can just tip them off a cliff into a very uncomfortable place. Mm. I'm really careful uh, in the way I talk about it in that it enhances, uh, this is probably a bit much science, but there's three stages to liver detoxification. Yep. And the first two are, the, are uh, involved in the liver and the gut does the third part. And the first part where the problematic substance gets converted into a more reactive form before it then moves into the second part of detoxification. Coffee actually speeds up the first part. And when people hear that, they, they cheer and think, mm. that's great and justifies me having bucket loads. <laughs> but the trouble is, is that for a lot of people, their lifestyle is inducing them to, they choose foods and drinks that really slow down phase two. So if you speed up phase one mm. and then phase two is really slow, you create a lot more what are called reactive species, which are like free radicals that damage your tissues on the inside, cause inflammation, uh, degeneration, and essentially aging from the inside out. Mm. So you've got to balance that. And I think that's, so if someone's living on a lot of processed food, a lot of yeah. rubbish, they drink a lot of alcohol, phase two will likely be very slow. And then coffee just pushes, makes all mm. of that worse. So it's very much a, it's very individual, but the adrenaline part of the story, I think is something that's, I don't think that's talked about enough 
uh, and it can, yeah, some people don't sleep and they don't know why they don't sleep yeah. and <laughs> they've got all that adrenaline and if they just cut back to one coffee yeah, a day or yeah. take a break, now they can sleep. <laughs> oh, I couldn't agree with you more. That was, that was awesome. That That's is. a great insight yeah. and, you know, something that people need to get that balance again yeah. that we've been yeah. speaking about the whole time. And I guess one of the things that does bring us balance is what we're doing right now and that's breathing. And I know that it's something that, that you speak about and, and and how that gives us, if done properly, the capacity to quiet our mind. Can you just elaborate a little bit more in that area for us and what is a nutritionist, bio, you know, biochemist telling us this for? <laughs> so I'm always looking for simple, effective ways to help people lower stress hormones. So my dream world is that they don't make too many in the first place that are going to hurt their, you know, the stress plus stress equals inflammation that you said rather than the stress fostering the growth. So I'm always trying to look at ways to decrease that stress hormone load in people. And science has shown that the that what lowers stress hormones faster than anything is extending the length of our exhalation. So let me backtrack a bit and explain how that happens there are lots of different parts of the human nervous system. I'll only just, I'll just touch on a couple to make this point and uh, really bring home how game-changing breathing can be or breathing diaphragmatically can be. So you've got the central nervous system, which just to put it super simply, it's under our conscious control. So I can kick my legs, I wave my arms around, I can do some squats, I can speak, stop speaking. I'm choosing all of that. Our, so that's uh, governed through the central nervous system. Then we've got the autonomic nervous system, which is we can't boss around. It's governed by the subconscious, which sounds hippie la la, but it's not. It's just a part of our nervous system that knows better than us. So if you, uh, it controls how quickly your hair grows, how quickly your fingernails grow. Uh, if you cut yourself on a piece of paper, you don't have to talk to that cut, go, come on, hurry up and heal. You just come back three days later, it's all sealed over. Uh, and it also drives our heart rate. So if your heart is racing, you can't just sit there and go, oh, dude, just slow down. You know, we're really safe. We're jacked up on all this caffeine right now. We've got 600 unopened emails. You haven't rung your mum in two weeks. So you've got all these stress hormones zooming around because of caffeine and perceptions of pressure and urgency. You can't instruct that heart to slow down. So the only way that we can get in and influence our autonomic nervous system is through how we breathe. There are two branches of the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight response. I usually call that the red zone. And then the parasympathetic nervous system is the rest, digest, repair, reproduce arm of the nervous system. And I often call that the green zone. And the trouble for so many people with their health today is that they're stuck in that red zone. They're stuck in the fight or flight response. Now, and they spend very little time in the green zone. And now there's no problem in being in the red zone at times. It, it, it can enhance performance massively. It, can, it bring, can bring a lot of benefits to us. The trouble is, is when we just live there and we don't ever come out of it. To spend less time in the red zone, we've got to look at all those things that lead us to produce adrenaline that we've talked about earlier. But we also want to actively try to activate that green zone, the parasympathetic nervous system, and that's the only way we can do that is extending the length of the exhalation. So slowing our breathing right down. When we inhale, our belly pushes forward. And then when we exhale, our belly shrinks back towards our spine. We move our diaphragm when we breathe like that. And the reason it lowers stress hormones so effectively is because we would never be able to breathe like that if our life was truly in danger. So if there really was someone from another tribe right there with a spear threatening you, you're not going to go, oh, just hang on, dude, while I do some yoga breathing. <laughs> we're dead if we don't immediately go <gasps> into the fight or flight, fight mm. or flight breathing, which is that short, sharp upper chest breathing. So the diaphragmatic breathing is game changing and it sounds too simple to make a difference. Mm. And but that's the tip of the iceberg of the of the chemistry of it essentially. And what I find and the feedback I get is it's because most people are used to living with the short, sharp upper chest breaths, when they get rituals in their life to become aware of how they breathe. So if they're at a desk job it might, and they've got a computer, it's every hour on the hour, notice the time, okay, 20 long, slow diaphragmatic breaths while I sit at my desk. It doesn't have to be fancy. Mm. It might be every morning when you boil the kettle to have a herbal tea or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> when you're boiling, you don't run around and do 5,000 jobs in your house. You breathe diaphragmatically while the kettle boils stopped at red traffic lights, breathe diaphragmatically. Mm. You just have triggers in your mind. Oh yeah. And so then when you come out of diaphragmatically breathing, 
you are so aware of it and you've got the tools to drop back down into it if it's appropriate. Yeah, one of our mentors, and I'm going to have to connect you, is a guy called Nam Baldwin, and he teaches that and talks about, you know, again, if we hyperventilate for five minutes, we're going to get lightheaded and pass out whether we like it or not, right? So equally, if we breathe diaphragmatically for five minutes in the way that you've just suggested, we're going to move from a state of stress to a state of calm, whether we like it or not, Mm. because the vagus nerves, as Nam says, are going, hey, dude, everything's cool down here, you can can relax. In the past, we had to wear a caftan and burn incense, right, (laughs) to do that and and get our yoga tights on. Have you hung yours up? Yeah, <laughs> he's got them on now. Oh, they're I'm yeah. not going to stand yeah. up. Yeah, no, I won't do that. I've got the mat down as well. So, but you know, again, it's good and it's unfortunate that for people with my, you know, gender and accent and hair colour have an issue with it. But it's great to hear your science behind, you know, what we're talking about, and it makes complete sense, mm. right? But what what are your practices in this area? What are the things that you do? Do you have your clock set? every hour or do you have practices that you follow that, you know, our listeners could maybe grab hold of and give a shot? So I'll share with you what I initially did to get started with it because it's pretty ingrained now. So I, when I was doing my PhD, I had the ridiculous privilege to learn Tai Chi from a Tai Chi master and he taught me really how to breathe like Mm. in this way. And I ended up getting a job uh, as a program manager at a health retreat in Australia and which again was a ridiculous privilege to be in such a glorious environment and really supporting people with their health. But I, that's the Tai Chi really came to life there because we started every morning with it. And up and while I was doing my PhD, so up until this point in my life, I'd been a runner, mad keen runner, you know, 10 Ks minimum a day. And then when I got this job in a health retreat, I was leaving in the leaving to go to work in the dark and coming home in the dark. And I wasn't so obsessed with the running that I was going to do it in the dark at, you know, 3am. So what my life went from running, and if you look at it from that calorie perspective, we talked about earlier, I was burning a lot of calories with all that running, but I dropped the running and ended up teaching Tai Chi for half an hour each morning, which mm. you're not burning a lot of calories, just lifting your arms up and down and breathing diaphragmatically. And then the next part of my day was to take the guests who hadn't exercised in a really long time on what was called the easy walk. So it was 20 minutes over flat ground just to get them moving, but that didn't lead me to break a sweat. So again, I'm not burning a lot of calories. And my eating remained the same across this time, but my clothes got looser and looser. And that fried my brain because based on the way I was educated, the opposite should have happened because I wasn't burning as many calories. And it was actually that experience coupled with what I was noticing in more and more of my clients that led me to go back to my geeky biochemistry textbooks with the question in my head, what leads the human body to get the message to burn fat and what leads the body to get the message to store fat? And I put those answers into the first book I ever wrote called Accidentally Overweight, which my my nine-week online course is now based on all these concepts. So the, the breath work and the Tai Chi practice I can't tell you how that changed my life. It ended up forming the basis of everything I do now. and But it changed my physical structure. It changed my level of calm um, that I experienced. And I wouldn't have told you that I was stressed before that, but the calm was, was uh, really, really impactful. So learning that way to breathe started out for me as a daily Tai Chi practice, whether I was at work or whether I wasn't. It's just what I did. And then before I went to bed, Again, I would just do that breathing. I didn't do the arm movements in the evening. So my body became very familiar with living from that place. I have also, at times, I'm not a daily meditator. At times I've done meditation, which obviously has a breath-focused practice to it. I've done yoga. I've done Pilates. Pilates is something I I still continue with to this day. Uh, But it depends on the teacher I've found with the breathing, (laughs) whether it's it's helpful Mm. or not. Some, because I learned the value of it in my 20s, it's ingrained in me now. So I don't sort of need that Tai Chi practice, but I did need the ritual, the commitment. And I did that for eight years without a break, every seven days a week. I think, I think that story is fascinating because most people uh, would think that they need to train for an hour or go on big, long, long runs, to, you know, burn the, the calories and, you know, the old conventional model of 
train hard or eat less calories and burn more, you know, and that's yep. certainly not the case anymore. We've seen and proven and you've just shared your story with that. It's it's important how you just changed your breathing and sometimes a, a short work, work, workout or a walk can actually affect uh, the health of the people in general. Absolutely. And for a lot of people are so depleted. So they've been running, you know, there are three stages. I talk about three stages of the stress response, high adrenaline, then that kicks into high cortisol and some people stay there. So with high adrenaline and high cortisol, but others can't sustain that level of stress hormone output. And they go into the, what I refer to as the third stage of the stress response, which is when their cortisol actually drops really low and they lose that sense of energy and vitality. They're, they have a deep unrelenting fatigue that they experience. Mm. Pushing them hard with exercise is the worst thing in the world for their physical body. They need this breath focused practice initially to recover uh, because they, they need that cortisol as an anti-inflammatory uh, to, to dampen down the inflammation that gets created in general life, but also from the stress response. So, yeah, the, when people are really depleted, it's it's even more important. That's so interesting. Would, it, would the analogy, I'm just sitting here trying to work out in my, my simple brain, is, is it's like if we're training all the time, we're in fight or flight, it's a little bit like when if we are genuinely in fight or flight, we think the flood's coming and that there's real real threat. We actually keep everything in our cupboard. We store stuff. Yeah. Whereas if we know we can just go down to the supermarket, mm. we, we don't tend to overshop. Does, it, does our bodies kind of do the same thing? Genius analogy. That's a big brain, not a little brain. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's absolutely spot on. So my, the way I understand the chemistry works is the adrenaline is the first port of call with, with, with the stress response, so that elevates. And your body will give you a lot of feedback that you need to reduce it. So you'll get your heart races, your blood pressure goes up, it messes with digestion because it diverts the blood supply that's normally so good in supporting digestion, it diverts that away to the periphery, to the arms and the legs because that's what's going to power you to get out of mm. the danger. So adrenaline has messes all of that up. So you're getting feedback that something needs to change, but most people don't. They just go, oh, it's stress and I can't change that. So the stress keeps going. But the body, with all that adrenaline, you then start to produce a lot of inflammatory compounds. So that's why we then move into the second stage of the stress response because cortisol, one of the good things it does is it's a very powerful anti-inflammatory. Your body tries to make more cortisol, more of this anti-inflammatory to dampen down the effect of the inflammation the adrenaline's creating. So you haven't addressed why the adrenaline's being made, so you've still got elevated adrenaline, now you've got elevated cortisol as well. And historically, the only long-term stress humans had, the only things that really led us to make cortisol were floods and famines and wars. Mm. And when you think about all of those scenarios, food was scarce. Yeah. Uh, so these days, when our body hasn't yet learned to discern the difference between the cortisol we make when there's an actual famine going on versus the cortisol we make when we're worried about our finances or our relationships. It's all just mm. cortisol to the body. So it slows metabolism down by being catabolic, breaking your muscles down. That slows you, slows everything down. But the body thinks it's doing you a favour doing that because it thinks this person's got half a chance of still being here if they've got a bit of flesh on their body yeah. when the food supply gets reinstated. So your analogy is perfect. We store it all with the stress when we're worried we're not going to be able to get to the shops yeah. and then all freedom when we can get to the shops. How counterintuitive is it, you know, because you see people go, oh, I haven't trained today. I, yeah. I need to go, to, oh, what? oh, my God. I, I, like it's it's just completely back to front and you know, I really appreciate you sharing that, that mm. insight to make people understand the science behind exercise definitely plays an important part in life as as does movement yeah. oh, and, yeah. and as does you know eating the right food but if if you're walking around stressed about getting that right all the time, mm. you, you, you might as well just write it off and and not yep. do it yep absolutely look Libby I guess one of the things that you know the program that we're involved in and we we did one our first live one since March in the, you know coming out of the COVID period and we we had one gentleman show up Again, it came up yeah. to me and started talking, and I had. I didn't um, recognise him. No, no. Well, I was. I pretended I did, but I had no idea <laughs> who he was. 
this is us doing our little boast to you, Libby, but I want to get it. And he was 35 kilos lighter than when, than what we'd seen the mm. last time that we ran Amazing. into him. So I just didn't have a clue who he was. And we've got so many stories like that and we love sharing them. I, as someone who's, a, you know, an amazing author, you know, a practitioner, someone who presents to people, have you got any like those little stories that just when you reflect on them absolutely light you up? Yeah, thank you. And that's magic that you got to do that this week and got that in-person feedback. Well done. Absolutely. You yeah. <laughs> have a million of those stories. <laughs> yeah, then, well, the first one that springs to mind was uh, I wrote a book called Exhausted to Energised a couple of years ago and uh, a lady came to the event I did a year after I wrote that book and she was very sweet and she took my hand uh, and said, I just wanted to thank you for writing Exhausted to Energise. She said, I'm 62 years old and I've been on and off diets my whole adult life. And she said, I feel like I've lost and gained the same 50 kilos for most of that adult life. And she said, and I was fed up with it. But she said, I'd also been really tired. When I read your book, Exhausted to Energised, she said, it made a lot of sense to me. And I thought, and in that book, one of my th- one of the things I encourage is that people shift their focus from to health and energy. And because I think energy is great feedback about what's going on inside of us. And she said, so I decided to just focus on having great energy because mm. it had been so long since I'd had that. So all her food choices, her movement choices, everything to do with her lifestyle became around, will this foster my energy or deplete it? So that was the basis of her choices. And she lost 25 kilos in eight months without it. She said, and I was not on a diet. Mm. I just ate for better energy. So I'll, I'll never forget that because you think if she's 62, the, the deprivation mindset she's had for so long, that's you know, the freedom in that. And when we feel good within ourselves, whatever that leads us to look like, when we have a really functional body and we have good energy, it changes the way we relate to everyone. So I'm obsessed with the ripple effect. And that's why I want individuals to look after themselves because of the benefits to them, but because of the ripple effect of Mm. that. We're kinder, we're more patient, because whether we realise it or not, I think that we all have standards in all the areas of our life, we just have usually never articulated that. So if we're not living up to the sta- the internal standards we have for ourselves, we berate ourselves, we judge ourselves, mm. we put ourselves down, and that then comes out in the way we speak to everyone, strangers as well as the people we love the most in the world. So I loved her story. There's also, um, I've got a big story that I'll condense of, it's probably my most favourite story, was, and it's very a very emotional-based intervention, Uh, A lady, again, she came to me for weight loss and she said, Libby, but I know why I'm overweight. I can't stop eating cake after dinner. So if your only solution is to tell me to stop eating the cake after dinner, I know I'm not supposed to, but we need something a bit more than that. Anyway, so when I would ask people a gazillion questions, it was initially all about their physical health. So do you get headaches? Do you get sinus congestion? Do you get reflux? What was menopause like? All, All of that and I'm giving away all my secrets now, I'd really quickly shift from asking them about their physical health and I go, are your parents still alive? And because I've been asking about their physical health, you can see that people think I'm looking for a medical, a family medical history because they go, oh, yeah, my dad had heart disease and my uncle had this type of cancer, so they start telling me that. And that's fine because I am interested in that as well. But what I was looking for more was when I said, are your parents still alive? I'm looking for their response to that because you can instantly tell if there's a world of pain or calm back there. Mm. And with this lady, I could see there was a world of pain. And when I asked, I said, oh, can you tell me about that? She said, well, my mother died giving birth to me and my father hasn't spoken to me since I was 14. And I said, do you mind sharing more about that? She Mm. said, no, not at all. Uh, I was born in Ireland. She said, literally in the middle of nowhere. I grew up on a farm where you couldn't see any of the neighbours. And I had four big brothers. The nearest one to me in age was 13. So there was a big gap. So I grew up there. I was the only girl with dad and my brothers. And she said, I really liked it. It was nice and quiet and I was good at school and I helped with the house. But then when I was 14, my dad wrote a letter and he put me on a boat and sent me to New Zealand to be raised by a distant aunt. And I never heard from him again. Now, when someone can't can't stop eating in a way that they know is hurting them. It's never about the food. I will always explain to them it's the way we distance ourselves from the way we perceive things are when they're not how we want them to be. So she doesn't lie on the couch at night going, Dad doesn't love me, I better eat cake. It's not conscious. Mm. She doesn't even know that she has this belief. 
but our belief, because we can't usually see what we believe, they're really slippery. Our beliefs are all tied up in our language patterns because we think our beliefs are reality. We think they're real. We don't think that we've made them up. So she said, but she gave it to me straight away. She said, he loved, my dad loved my brothers more than he loved me. That was why he sent me away. He didn't love me as much as my brothers. Mm. But I believe humans have got beautiful hearts. I know their behaviour doesn't always demonstrate that, but I believe they've got beautiful hearts. And so I said to her, what if the opposite was true? And what if he sent you away because he loved you so much? You think about it from his perspective. You're his one and only daughter. You said you were good at school. He'll have wanted you to get a way better education than you were ever going to get living so remotely in Ireland. You were 14 years old. You were probably just about to start menstruating and he wouldn't have known how on earth to handle that because she's 14 being sent away. She's 60 when she's working with me. And she said, I've never thought about it like that, that he did it because he loved me. Mm. And I said, well, is he still alive? She said, he is. And I said, could you get in touch with him? And she said, I could probably get his phone number. And so I very boldly said, why don't you ring him and ask him why he sent you away? And still to this day, I get covered in goosebumps when I talk about it. Still to this day, she found the courage inside of herself to phone him and ask him why he sent her away. And he gave her a version of what I just said to you. So I didn't, I didn't talk to her about cake. I didn't have to. She just stopped eating it and she lost her weight. She would have still had cake when she went out with her friends, of course. But if I'd gone in and just said, don't eat the cake, mm. she already knew not to do that. But she, she touched my heart in a way that I will never get over with Maybe. her courage That's in ringing him phenomenal. to ask him that question. Mm. What a beautiful story. Yeah. What a beautiful – and I really, really appreciate you just sharing that. Libby. And, I, you know, and I looked at your, your purpose and, you know, you talk about the ripple effect and congratulations on the ripple effect that mm. you've created so far. But I started with a selfish question. I'm going to finish with, uh, with a selfish statement, like 13 lucky for some, <laughs> for some, but not all of us. <laughs> so when's book 14 yeah. coming out and what's it about? <laughs> because it's not that I feel uncomfortable with the 13 books, but Libby, write another book. <laughs> Thanks for having my back. <laughs> yeah, I will. It's percolating right now. So uh, I don't quite know. I haven't quite honed in on the title, but uh, it's very much brewing inside me right now. But in the meantime, I'll keep delivering. So I'm doing some online events, live online events, uh, and I will keep my what I offer going through, yeah, my online courses. So I've got in my last, I offer my Weight Loss for Women course that goes for nine weeks. So I offer that four times a year. And that's where I bring to life what I talked about earlier, all the mechanisms uh, that a human has to understand for what has to happen for a body to use fat versus burn it. Mm. So, yeah, that the course goes into all of that. So I'll continue to reach people online and then uh, to help you relax, Matt, I'll release another book, I hope, next <laughs> year. Okay, well, no awesome. pressure on you. So where do we go to yeah. to get the 13 uh, books that you've already produced and, and get your online uh, courses? I know that you also have nutritional supplements as well. I, I noticed there on your, your website. So how do we find you online, Libby? Uh, my website is Dr. Libby, so just D-R-L-O-B-B-Y.com. And there's loads of free information there. We uh, I write blogs really regularly. Uh, you can read yeah all about those online courses uh, as a way to stay home and keep educating yourself. It's all at drlibby.com. Oh, and like you, because we're like young dudes, <laughs> you've obviously got Insta and FB oh, yes. and. and yes, yeah, I forget about all that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've got it covered. Don't worry. <laughs> just just sit back and relax. I've got it covered. Um, on Facebook is Dr. Libby Live and Instagram is just Dr. Libby. It looks, it looks like dribbly, but it's actually DR Libby. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Some great insights there, Matty. <laughs> Wonderful. We always ask the final question, uh, same question to our guests, and what is probably your three or four things that you can't do without to live a healthy life? Well, certainly the first pillar of that for me is what I opened with, which is spending time in nature. So whatever yeah. that looks like, watering my vegetables, going for a bushwalk, even cleaning out the chicken coop doesn't matter. If I'm outside, I can see the trees, see the sky, puts everything into perspective for me. So spending time in nature is something I do every single day, yeah. uh, no matter what. Number two, I would say, is the basis of whole real food. I don't not eat things because they're not good for me or I'm not allowed. I just, I very rarely want stuff that comes out of packets. I'm just innately attuned to, to nourish myself, to focus on nourishment. So I predominantly eat whole real food. Uh, doesn't mean I don't eat hot chips. But And one of the key, thing, key things I teach is everyone's always going to eat hot chips, yeah, but it's yeah. how often we do it 
if you do it four yeah. times a week, every week, yeah, not, a, not a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> if you do it six times a year, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Then probably the last two things I would say form really uh, robust parts of my wellbeing uh, pyramid is to do with how I think. So I've really trained myself to become aware of what I think and I am very aware that not everything I think is true. I'm very aware of, and I've done a lot of reading into the two thought systems we have. I just call them old brain and new brain. And the old brain is very good at protecting us and it has a really strong automatic response, but we're not always necessarily aware of that. And then our new brain can bring in reason and logic to examine things. I hold myself to a standard of really trying to, if I get it, if I get a bit flat, I don't let that slide. I'm going to work out why. Mm. Is it to do with food, movement, the way I'm breathing? But quite often it's some thought that's caught me and I haven't seen it for that I've made it up. I've made up some kind of story. So that actuality versus reality that I talked about. And then probably the fourth thing I would say, the final thing is I remind myself every day that the opposite of stress is not calm, it's trust. And I remind myself regularly just to trust, to trust the unfolding. And with that statement I said earlier that life happens for us, not to us. And when you can stay really anchored in that belief, it really helps you get through anything, the good times and the challenging times. That's awesome. Wonderful. Great insights today. It's been great chatting with you, Libby. I really appreciate your time. Uh, We both do. It's been awesome. Thanks, Libby. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for the work you're doing in the world, you boys. Thanks for listening to The Change Room Podcast, a whiff of well-being with Minnie and Matt. For more information about The Change Room, please head to thechangeroom.info.